0: who is a distinguished voice in fantasy and historical, uh, I guess uh, you would say two particular lines of fantasy, the uh, Westria novels, which are your own, and the Avalon series, which you share with Miriam um, uh, Zimmer Bradley, and is, who's also a a personage of some renown and in ways that I don't quite understand, but we'll get to later (laughs) in the the non-Christian, non-Jewish, non-Muslim religious strain in America that we call um, um, paganism paganism or heathenism, who's also, as far as I know, the only officer in the science fiction writers of America who plays the harp. (laughs) Um, So without further ado, I would like to introduce uh, Diana Paxson.
1: Okay, is this still in the proper relationship to sound good? my voice? Okay, good.
0: To working. Working. Okay. That thing's
1: off. Well, baby. <laughs> uh, in the discussion afterward, I can explain how I ended up writing Marion's books. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and but now I will give you a sample. Um, this is from Sword of Avalon, and I think I'll just read the chapter, and you can ask me anything that confused you um, afterward. Uh, I can't hear you very well. Next year. I don't think it's on. Oh. I think it's down too far. Yeah, you, you need just just to move to it up. It up. Oh, here. Hello. I think all you actually need to know is that this is taking place in the 12th century BC in, uh at the end of the Bronze Age and uh, our hero who is a, a smith originally from Greece has been faced with the problem of how to turn a lump of meteor iron into a sword. For reasons... Problem I also faced myself. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, He has had a difficult relationship with the high priestess who is the one who wants him to do this. (coughs) And all this kind of cosmic saving the world stuff depends on it. The setting sun that bathed the Downs in a fiery glow sent Andural's shadow into the smithy before her. She paused in the doorway to let her vision adjust, waiting until she could see the man who stood by the hearth. Valantos had dressed carefully to meet her. His sleeveless tunic of saffron wool had patterned banding at neck and hem, but he seemed thinner as if he had been fasting. She remembered him wearing that garment at the midwinter festival. He had not prepared himself for her, she realized then, but for the goddess he served. The smithy had been swept, The hearth was clean and empty, but the shelf on which he had placed his clay image of the goddess bore a bunch of early summer flowers. You came, he breathed. You called. After the way that they had parted, for him to send for her argued great need. At Avalon, she had no purpose but struggle to make sense out of her dreams. Here at last, there might be something she could do. Lady, be welcome here. I see now that I dreamed true, he added. When you stand in the sunlight, your skin is the color of the coals, the color of her skin. That's why I sent to you. I ask you now, will you let her speak through you to tell me how to forge the sword? Will you trust me? Will you trust her? Will you, she replied? I must. I am sorry for what happened at the smithy on Avalon. He coughed, and she realized what that admission had cost him. I ran away from you. I cannot run from myself. I was proud of my skill. I rage because I know nothing. But in my dream the lady of the forge speaks. She said I must surrender to the fire. If you give the fire a voice, then I will know what to do. And Earl believed him. She had seen that look before when an initiate prepared to take the herbs that would break down the barriers between the worlds. Sometimes death came with the illumination. One must be willing to accept either outcome. For the first time, she understood that smiths were also a priesthood. Her own heart beat heavy and slow. Priestess to priest, I will work with you, and if your lady wills it, as goddess to smith as well. Why is the hearth empty? asked Aunt Daryl. Night had fallen. A dozen flickering rushlights made the smithy a temple of the mysteries. That is always the first task, to make the fire, His voice rasped with suppressed emotion. The fire is the goddess with us, the power of transformation that hardens what was soft and makes soft things hard. Fire is change. Lady, will you bless the hearth? (laughs) A shiver of memory passed through her as she remembered the frozen lake where she had invoked the fire. Had that been the moment when the balance tipped and the changes that had brought them both here began? She took a deep breath and stretched out her hands above the rock-rimmed oval on the floor. Be thou the womb, burn with desire. Transmute and transform, lady of fire. He lifted the basket and tipped the glistening black chunks of charcoal into the hearth, cascading onto the packed earth with a curiously musical sound. Carefully, he spread and banked them with a depression in the middle opposite the point where the bellows pipe fit through the hearth wall. Sit while I make a flame, he told her, picking up the fire drill and the piece of soft punk wood that had been laid ready. She sensed that the energy he put into this action was also part of the ritual. As he looped the bowstring around the shaft with the drill and settled its head into the groove in the wood, she took her seat on the bench at the head of the hearth. Surely to kindle fire with a bow and drill was a kind of magic, she thought, as he steadied the wood between his knees and began to spin the shaft with regular thrusts of the bow. To keep the drill at the correct angle and maintain the spin required considerable skill. Fascinated, she watched as he swayed to the motion. Spin the shaft and chant the spell, she whispered. Work the bow and wind it well. Harden shaft and swiftly spin. Heat release the flame within. He looked up, something kindling in his gaze that awakened an answering heat between her thighs. Startled, she stood and found her hands lifting in the same pose as that of the clay goddess who watched over the hearth. Had he intended this? The symbol is nothing, the reality is all, was a watchword of the mysteries. The bend and sway of the man's body, the steady penetration of the drill, the friction that was even now beginning to kindle a faint thread of smoke from the wood, were both symbol and reality. They had not discussed how he was to call the goddess into her, but Andrel realized that she herself had pronounced the spell. Her body moved in instinctive response to his motion. Her breathing altered to match his. The smoke was a blue swirl. The scent of pine filled the forge. Lady of fire, hear me, Volantos whispered. Lady of the forge, be with me. I offer you my strength. I kindle your flame. In my need, I call you. Lady, come to me now. And could have called fire, but he had kindled a fire in her instead. She strained for completion, but it was her spirit that opened to receive the power. Fire blazed suddenly as Volantos nudged dry reed and then thin shavings into the smoldering groove, and heat surged from Mandaral's sex to fill her whole body, leaving her consciousness no more than a corner from which to share the ecstasy. In a single swift movement, he tipped the flaming kindling into the nest of charcoal and blew. "'Make me a bed of coals," she told him, "'and the vestige of Van Derl that remained within "'noted that she was speaking in the tongue of the Middle Sea.' "'His startled gaze turned to wonder. "'The charcoal was catching quickly. "'As the temperature in the smithy rose, "'she loosened the pins that held her garment and cast it aside. "'At the naked lust in the smith's gaze, the fire within her grew. "'Smiling, the lady gestured toward the workbench "'where he had laid the iron shards. "'Come, beloved.' We have work to do. Belantos bent to the bellows, pushing with strong, steady strokes to force air through the coals. At each blast, flames spurted upward, and each time they sank, the coals retained a brighter glow. It seemed to him that the same glow pulsed from the body of the woman who stood on the other side of the hearth. The firelight burnished, breast still round and firm, gleamed on the curve of her waist and the sweet joining of her thighs. His own flesh ached with desire, but he had expected that. Now he had another use for the energy. How swiftly the coals were heating. Sweating, he pulled off his own tunic and tossed it on a bench, then thrust at the bellows once more. Fire kindled the pieces of charcoal to a brightening sunrise glow. Take the first of the chards and set it among the coals, the lady said. Heave at the bellows until it glows like the sun. He cast her a doubtful look, for a white heat was far too great for working bronze, but her face remained calm. In any case, the time for calculation was past. He could only go forward and trust that the goddess he served understood iron as well as she knew bronze. The coals pulsed white hot, and far more quickly than he would have believed, the piece of iron glowed white as well. Now you must take it from the fire, said the lady. Set it on your anvil and take up your mid-sized hammer. Stroke from one end to the other to compress and beat out the iron, gently but firmly, as you would caress a lever. With his left hand, Volantos reached for the tongs and used them to grip the dull end of the shard, swung it over to the anvil in a shower of sparks, and essayed a tentative tap. More sparks flared, but there were no explosions. Had he not heated the iron enough before? The ductile metal yielded to his hammer, stretching, extending. As it cooled, the color deepened. He felt the moment when it began to resist him, thrust it once more into the coals and began to work the bellows again. You are the hammer, she said softly, and I am the forge. The sword is the child we are making together by your will from my womb. He looked up from the bellows and could not tell if her eyes shone or only reflected the flames. Once more, the metal was glowing. Once more, he returned it to the anvil and began to shape it, always tapping down its length in the same direction, teasing out pockets of air, driving out impurities. Again and again, the iron made the journey from fire to anvil until he had forged the rough metal into a single solid bar. And then it was done. Volantos looked down at the cooling metal, watching the glow flayed until it was a dull black. No longer the unformed meteor, it held now the shape that he had given it. He heard a step and looked up. The lady stood before him, a beaker of clear water in her hands. Drink and be restored, and then take up the next piece and begin. Three times more, Volanto set tongs to a raw shard of meteor and thrust it into that fiery womb. Three times more, he stroked and shaped the glowing metal. And when he had finished, the lady directed him back to the first length, and he began again. Three more times each piece was heated and hammered, heated and shaped, until he had four black strips a little less than the length of a sword. He laid them out on his workbench, running his fingers along the gray-black surfaces with a dull wonder. The lamps had all burned out, and the only light was the glow from the forge. From the stillness and the feel of damp in the air it must be close to dawn. His neck was stiff, the muscles of his upper back and shoulders were aching, and his right arm trembled from strain. He shook his right hand to loosen fingers cramped to the shape of the hammer's shaft. He heard a sigh and turned. The lady had sunk down upon the bench. No, it was Anne Darrell, blinking in confusion and wrapping her garment around her. Is it done? she asked. By the lady's grace it is begun, he answered her. Now we need rest and food. On a chest beside the door he saw a wooden platter with meat and cheese and wondered who had put it there and when. Valentos carried it over to the priestess, but she had eaten no more than a few mouthfuls when her eyes closed and she slumped against his shoulder. He still had the strength to lift her, a little surprised to find that tenderness was his only response to the body in his arms. All his desire was spent, as if he had been making love to her all this time, and in a way he supposed that was true. He laid her down upon the bed and pulled the blanket over her, and with that exhaustion took him and he sank down beside her and knew no more. Volantos lay cradled in warmth, as if he had been laid in the forge. Then he tried to move. <laughs> Suddenly all the muscles of his back and shoulders were screaming. He had thought himself inured to the labor of the forge, but forging was a small part of bronze work, and in the past moon he had not even been doing much of that. I must get up, he told himself. The iron is waiting, and the goddess. He opened his eyes and tensed with alarm as he realized the other side of the bed was empty. Then someone touched his shoulder, and he turned to see Anderle kneeling beside him, a clay beaker of steaming soup in her other hand. Or rather, it was the goddess, for she was once more naked, and the flesh that touched his burned from within. Obediently, he drank, feeling the heat spread through his core. When he set the beaker down, she began to knead his shoulders, and the same heat suffused his muscles, driving out the pain. (laughs) He closed his eyes. This is how the iron feels when I hammer it out, hot from the forge. She took his face between her hands and kissed him, and from lips to groin he burned with her fire. When he could think again, she was standing by the forge. They had slept through the day. On the workbench, a lamp flickered brightly. More charcoal had been added to the hearth, and the new coals were already beginning to glow. Arise, O my hammer, she told him, and thrust the iron into the fire. When he worked with the smith catarerics, they had heated bits of bog iron and hammered them together. Could he weld the iron strips he had forged the day before? It must be possible, for the goddess had stacked them together and was clasping them against her breast. When she held them out to him, they were already hot, as if they had been in the fire. Reverent as if he were touching a woman's body, Vellantos drew the poker toward him to open a way through the coals. He gripped the stack of iron bars with the tongs and gently slid them into the glowing valley, then moved to the bellows. Again and again the fire flared and fell. The iron was beginning to glow. Valantos looked at the lady and saw her smiling, watching the fire. Not until the metal glowed sun-bright did she gesture to him to take up the tongs. He gripped the duller end of the pile tightly and swung it over to the great stone anvil, grasped the large stone hammer and swung. Sparks flew, but he could feel the iron yield. Strike with strength and weld it well, hammer's heft beats out the spell. Many melding, four to one, hammer till the work is done. He did not know if the chant came from his lips or hers. Now he must put forth all his strength, heating and beating, brushing off loose scale and hammering again. The iron strips gave way beneath his blows, softened and lengthened, flowing, clinging, melding, until a single glowing shape lay in the fire. Obedient to her soft suggestions, Volantos brought it to white heat once more, hammering it wide and flat, twisting and folding and beating it out again. As the stars wheeled across the night sky and the sparks flew about the forge, the lady stood beside him, murmuring spells, and he beat their magic into the iron. Courage and command were in that chanting, endurance and honor, certainty and skill. He hammered in the virtue to strike surely and to cleave clean, to find the right target with each blow. When dawn came, the smith drew from the fire a dully glimmering iron bar, The patterns that all that folding and twisting had melded within it were sensed rather than seen, but he could feel the power within. He set the iron upon the workbench and found that food and drink had been provided, and the priestess was herself once more. They ate and drank and lay down together, sharing their warmth, emptied of desire. And Daryl woke as the last light of sunset was shafting through the doorway, bathing everything in a warm glow, as if the smithy had become part of the hearth. Vellanto still slept beside her, curled on his side with one arm laid protectively across her thigh. In sleep, his face had a curious innocence, the lines carved by purpose and passion that sometimes gave him such a ferocious aspect smoothed away. She understood now that this was a man who would sacrifice everything, even himself, for a worthy goal. No wonder they had struck sparks. They were far too alike. He was thinner than he had been when she arrived. So, she supposed, was she. To carry a god took energy, but she had only to let the power of the lady flow through her. He was burning from within, consumed by the power he was putting into the work as the fire consumed the coals. Contemplating those rugged features, she felt her heart wrenched by an unexpected surge of tenderness. She lifted a hand to touch him and then stopped, trembling. One day, she promised herself, we shall lie like this and make love, but if I touch him now we will waste in bed the power that should be spent in the forge. Even the thought of embracing him was enough to send a pulse of sensation through her flesh. Gently she moved his hand and eased from beneath the covers, wrapped a cloak around her, and stepped outside. When she returned she found that a wooden bowl full of steaming stew had been set beside the smithy door. Though she had not seen them, it was clear that the elder folk were keeping watch and anticipating their needs, as they had taken Alfric's into their keeping when she arrived. She brought in the food and set it on the workbench. The rich scent awakened her hunger, and she ate eagerly. The bar of iron lay where Volantis had left it. The metal was cold, but to eyes trained to see the spirit within, it held a subtle glow. The raw energy she had sensed within the shards had altered to a contained blaze of power, but it was not yet focused. That, she thought, would come when it had been given the shape of a sword. It was dark now. She lit more rushlights and fixed them in their holders of stone and tipped new charcoal into the hearth. On the bed, Volantos sighed and stirred. It was time to work once more. Andaril hung the cloak from its hook and combed out her hair. She could feel the presence of the goddess as a pressure behind her, patient and a little amused. Lady of fire, she whispered, naked I stand before you. May both preoccupation and passion depart from me. For the cause of life and the good of this land, I offer myself as a vessel for your will. She let out her breath in a long sigh. For a moment she hovered on the edge of awareness, and then softly, smoothly, as the metal absorbs the heat of the coals, the goddess came in. Now, Take the iron from the fire. Volantos looked at the lady in surprise, for coals and iron alike glowed with the rich orange of the setting sun on a hazy day. It is hot enough. The welding is done. Now you must shape the blade. He nodded and with swift efficiency lifted the iron bar from the forge, holding in his mind the image of the finished weapon. Now he would need not only his great strength, but all of his skill and everything he had learned when he struggled to create such swords from bronze. Then, the casting had accomplished half of the labor. Now he would have to forge the metal into the shape he desired. It would be difficult and demanding work, but he had spent enough time tapping around the edges to straighten and harden bronze blades to imprint that shape in his muscles and bones. He laid the glowing end upon the anvil and began to flatten and shape the base and tang to which he would rivet the hilt. It was a simple form and would give him a place to grip the iron while he worked on the rest of the blade. The metal cooled and he laid it once more in the forge, pumping the bellows until it began to glow. Back to the anvil came the iron. The hammer swung down. Tap, 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 ting. He found the rhythm, drawing the softened metal out and working it away from the center toward the sides. Muscles loosened, flexing and releasing as he swung. To weld the iron bar had forced a singular focusing of will. This part of the work was different, requiring a flexible coordination of hand and eye, of heart and will. Turning and tapping, he persuaded each glowing section of metal to take its new form. With each stroke of the hammer, he felt the substance of the metal changing as the flesh of a woman changes beneath the arousing fingers of her lover. And as making love also changes the lover, his soul flowed into the hot iron. And presently as he bore the evolving blade from the forge to the anvil and back again he became aware that the ringing of bronze hammer on iron had become the foundation for a song from the lips of the lady came a sweet descant to the rhythm of the hammer an answer to the wheeze of the bellows and the whistling of the flames in the coals sometimes it was pure music and sometimes words surfaced from the song she sang of the dark spaces of the heavens in which the iron had floated, cold and alone, of the searing flight that had ended as it buried itself in the soil. The elder folk had told him how their fathers had dug it out, still smoking, and tried to hammer it into some useful form, and that too was in the song. She sang of the trees that had captured the light of the sun in the forest, and the long, slow smolder in a womb of turf that transformed them into charcoal. She sang of their delight as they were at last allowed to blossom into flame. A forge song, she sang, a song of fire and iron, a song of the sword, writhing beneath the hammer as it sought its destiny. When he glanced up, he could see the lady shining and singing in the light of the fire, and found himself striving to incorporate the long sleek curve of waist and thigh into the shape of the sword. Thinning from the center on one side and then on the other, drawing the iron from the narrow neck downward to the swell of the blade and then inward once more, he persuaded the metal to take the form he envisioned so vividly. He had believed that when he cast bronze he poured part of his spirit into the mold, but this intense extended forging was an altogether more active and intimate creation, like the grapplings of love when a man strives to give his seed. But what he was forging into this sword was his soul. Throughout that night the smithy rang. In the encampment of the older folk they heard the forge music and drummed and prayed. And when Dodd spread the sky with glowing banners, Valantos lifted the black sword he had shaped and carried it outside to salute the coming day. Then he turned back to the smithy, blinking as the shadows of the forge replaced the light. Now that the night's labor was over, he could feel the ache in every limb. The sword was not finished. Beneath his caressing fingers the metal was smooth, but the marks of the hammer would have to be ground out and the edges honed. As he crossed the threshold, the leg that had been wounded in turns betrayed him, and he stumbled, instinctively thrusting out the iron blade to break his fall. He felt it give beneath him. When he strengthened, recovering vision showed him that his lovely blade had bent like a bow. He whirled to face the lady. "'What is this?' he cried, fury displacing his fatigue. "'It bends like an old man's pistol. "'Better a bronze sword that breaks. "'At least you can stab your enemy with the ragged end. "'What have I done wrong?' "'The iron had passed a hand-breadth from the lady's face "'as he swung it up, but she did not move. "'You have done nothing wrong, but you are not yet done.' "'She sounded amused. "'Put it on the anvil and hammer it flat again. "'Do not fear to mar it. "'The metal is quite tough and will not be harmed.' Philanthos realized that he was shaking. He did not begrudge the labor, but after so much effort and hope, to fail now would destroy him as well as the sword. He laid it on the anvil and took up the smaller stone hammer. A few well-placed blows straightened the blade. He turned to the lady. Very well, it looks almost the same, but I will not sleep easy, wondering how this weakness may be healed. This day we will not sleep at all, said the lady, though we may rest. The sword is formed, but not yet finished. For that, it must be cradled in the heat of my womb. At his look of confusion, she smiled once more. Put more charcoal into the hearth and pile it high. Heave at the bellows until it glows like the rising sun. We shall place the sword within and pack the coals tightly around it. There it will grow an armored skin like a dragon's hide. But we must be vigilant to keep the coals at the same heat until the outside glows red once more. For three nights, you have put forth all your power. What is needed now is the patience to endure. Patience has never been one of my virtues, lady, he muttered, and she laughed. Do you think I did not know? As Volandos brought more charcoal from the storage shed, he felt the pounding of his heart begin to ease. He had never heard of the technique the lady was describing and could not imagine what use it might be, but so far her directions had been good. To trust that she knew how to complete the task was all the hope he had. By the time all was ready, the sun was climbing up the sky. Once more, Volantos used the poker to open a way. Slowly, reverently, he slid the black blade into the hot depths of the forge, then adjusted the piled coals until no part of it could be seen. Should I ply the bellows now, he asked? Not yet. You can estimate the intervals, for you know how this charcoal behaves. From time to time, you will need to check the color and give the fire more air, but the iron will melt if it grows too hot, just as it will weaken if it is too cool. He nodded, swaying. For three days the desire to complete the work had driven him. Now he did not know what to do. He looked down at his strong hands, blinking. They were blackened by the work and bore a few scrapes he had not noticed at the time. First we should eat. Vilanthus looked up as he heard her voice alter. The goddess had departed and she was only Aunt Daryl once more, shivering in the morning breeze that came through the open door. He forced his limbs to motion, took down her cloak and wrapped it around her, then guided her to a bench and made her sit down. (laughs) Now he, too, felt the cold and pulled on the tunic he had cast aside three days ago. This time they have brought us soup, he said, picking up the bowl set by the door, with marrow, he added, breathing in the rich aroma, and some kind of roots and barley. He handed one of the bowls to Aunt Daryl, then took his own and sank down beside her. She cradled it gratefully between her hands. We had a dish something like this when I was growing up, he said as the rich soup began to restore him, though they cooked it with more herbs. At Avalon, this was festival fair, and Earl replied, our food is healthy and plentiful except when we are fasting, but we rarely eat meat, and strong flavors make us think too much about the body when we are trying to focus on spiritual things. That explained a lot, thought Philantos. <laughs> Just now, our bodies need feeding, he said instead. She nodded and heard her spoon scrape the bottom of the bowl. What was it like growing up by the Middle Sea, she asked. His chuckle rumbled in his chest. What I remember most just now, he answered, is that in the summer it was warm. Mm-hmm. He got up and poked the fire, saw that the coal still glowed orange and sat down again. Will the goddess tell you when it is time to take the sword out, he said. I believe so, the priestess replied. I can feel her presence like a pressure within my skull, perhaps in the same place I was lurking when she was here. I think that when you need more direction, she will come in again. Then you remember what we have done? I retain images, though I do not always understand. She sighed and set down her bowl. A companionable silence fell between them. He could hear the sweet song of a warbler from the trees outside. It was a winter bird in the lands from which he came. It was the first time he thought that he had been in in Ann Daryl's presence and felt at ease, but truly he was too tired to feel either lust or irritation, and so he supposed was she. For the first time they could see each other as they truly were. Without thinking he had put his arm around her, and she leaned against him gratefully. They continued so, sharing stories or sitting in silence, as the sun passed its zenith and journeyed westward, rising every so often to feed more air or fuel to the fire. At some point during the day, Volanto slid from the bench to sit with legs outstretched and his back against it. He only realized that he had slept when he heard the wheeze of the bellows and started awake to see Ann kneeling to work them on the other side of the hearth. I'm sorry, he began, but she shook her head. You have done your work. It is the part of the man to labor to plant the seed in the womb, but after that all he can do is take care of the mother and wait while it grows. Are you saying that this sword is our child? His lips quirked in unexpected amusement. After three nights of forging, do you have to ask? Rest. When the blade comes from the forge, you will have to polish and sharpen it and give it a hilt as the father raises the child. But I think that watching over it is my task now. When Volandos opened his eyes, he found himself surrounded by fiery light. For a moment, this seemed quite natural, as if it was he, not the sword, that lay in the hearth. Then his vision cleared, and he realized that the light was coming through the doorway. Through the trees, he could see a flicker of orange light that must be the setting sun. Panic jerked him upright, casting the blanket that had been drawn over him aside. His pulse slowed as he saw Andrel. No, it was the Lady of the Forge, standing beside the hearth. My lady, is it time? His heart began to pound once more. This is the hour when the sword from the stars must come forth from the womb of fire her voice was measured and slow. Take up the tongs and draw it out. Lay it on the anvil to make sure it is straight, but only for a moment. Before it can cool, you must put it into the tub of brine. But that will soften it again, the smith exclaimed. Fool, this is not bronze. A quick quench will soften copper, but like the slap that wakes the child to life, the shock of the water hardens iron. Move, man, the time to bring forth is come. She stretched out her hand and fire seared his veins. With a single swift movement, Volantos took up the tongs in one hand and in the other a shovel with which he lifted the coals. Parts of the sword had glowed while he was forging it, but now what he saw in the depths of the forge was a sword made of fire. Swiftly he gripped it, carried it in a swirl of smoke to the anvil. A practiced eye saw that it was still straight and true. He lifted it again, poised it over the brine tub, and with one last frantic glance at the goddess plunged the blade straight down. It hissed like a serpent and he began to believe that it might have grown a dragon's hide. The water bubbled around it and released a cloud of evil-smelling steam. Velantos held it steady until the water stilled and then, hardly daring to breathe, lifted it free. From fire and water it is born, said the lady. After passion, peace. The blade was already cool enough to hold in his bare hands. The dark surface seemed opaque, but along the thin edges ran a rippling border of paler gray. Bend it, the lady said then. He looked at her in alarm. Bend it, for if you do not test it now, you will always fear. She was right, he thought grimly, and if it failed, he could plunge what was left of it into his own heart. He swung the blade down, set the point in the earth, and leaned. His heart stopped as he felt it give. He jerked back, his cry of anguish cut short as the sword quivered in his grip like a live thing and flexed back to its original shape once more. Volantos fell to his knees, holding the sword in both hands, examining it as closely as ever a father examined his newborn child. But there was no tiny cracks along the edges, no distortion in the blade. The sword was without flaw. Weeping, he cradled the blade against his breath. When he could see again, he found Anderl beside him. Her eyes were shining with the same exultant light that he knew must blade in, blaze in his own. From somewhere outside he could hear cheering. We have done it, she said softly. Drink to your triumph, my dear, she held out a clay cup. The elder folk have sent us mead. He needed the support of her arm to get upright again. He took the cup, turned, and tipped it hissing into the coals. To you, my lady, with all my heart, he whispered, this is your miracle. And yours, he added, turning to Anderle. She poured more mead into his cup, and he drank it down. Then, very carefully, he set the sword in the workbench, and his cup beside it took Anderl's from her hand and pulled her against him. She stiffened in surprise, but not, he sensed, in rejection. Kissing her, he felt that the heat grow between them. He stroked down her back, waiting for the yielding that was like the moment when the metal ceases to resist the hammer. It came swiftly. They had had three nights of foreplay, after all. <laughs> the bed was before them. All thought ceased as he lifted her in his powerful arms. <laughs> all right.
0: Two tales of transformation of a, <laughs> of a meteor into a sword, of a mid-level oh. academic into a science fiction writer. <laughs> uh, we, uh, when we return, we'll discuss these two stories and other stuff. Uh, first, let's, let's uh, all have a drink and save a child from uh, torture and death.